That's how it works. So what the book is telling us is Esther has everything to lose. She not only will lose her kingdom, her status, her wealth, but there is but one law. And we know how kings handle their laws. We know it from books like Daniel. We know it from uh, that culture at the time. Not even the king can overrule his own law. He will be bound by it. He will have to kill Esther. What holds us back? All of the normal things from simply losing the respect of someone we respect all the way up to death. Now for many of us, you know, we read, uh, we read uh, the passage in Jude. For many of us, presently in our American culture, what we face is scoffers. What we face is mockers. What we face, what we have to lose, is our respect, our dignity. We will be subjected to public shame. Christianity is a joke. And if you don't believe that, uh, don't take this as a command from the pulpit, but start watching late night TV, right? Christianity is a subject of mockery. And if that's, you know, we say, oh, uh, you know, Christians overseas have to worry about death. We, all we have to do, all we have to worry about is making fun of it, being made fun of. And there's some truth to that, but um, scoffing is a serious uh, deal, right? That's why apostles and prophets and Jesus himself warns the people that this will happen. Because what scoffing does is it slowly erodes your confidence. It slowly erodes your ability to say, you know, yes, I believe what the Bible says. And you start wanting to qualify and, and and it saps you of your strength. Sometimes a good joke is the best possible weapon. Because if everybody's laughing at it, how can it be true? It undermines the seriousness of it all. And so we have to face that. We have to laugh when it's funny, but also say that's not true. That's dishonoring Christ. That's blasphemous. We have to believe that in our hearts. We have to be strong. We cannot let the scoffing of the world overwhelm us. Jude's instruction, you beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. When those moments come, you have a response. It's a personal response. It's a corporate response for us as a church. Our response is to go back into the Word of God and to see the beauty of this thing that God has given to us. The Word of God can be, can be funny at times. God tells good jokes at times, though often uh, because of cultural issues we don't understand the jokes, but we'll talk about a few. Uh, however, uh, this is serious and beautiful. And as you become enraptured by this compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ, it restores our confidence. Jude knows this. That's why he wants us to study Scripture in the Holy Spirit because as we are in the Word, it restores our confidence in the Word and in God and in His Son and guards us for that day when His glory will be finally revealed. Esther has everything to lose. That's what holds her back. And we can say another thing is Esther is no doubt wondering, will any good come of this? There's a logic a reason behind Esther's reluctance. If she does this, she has everything to lose, and will she gain anything? I mean, come on. 
one girl stopping a genocide? How is that going to happen? The most likely, the most reasonable expectation that Esther has is, I will sacrifice, I will lose my life. And so you can imagine the compromises that are going on in her head. I would be more useful as a Jew, as a Jewish queen, than I would be as a dead queen. Right? I would be more useful as a Jewish queen in hiding than as a dead queen. She has everything to lose, nothing to gain. Why would she do this? What drives her forward? That's our second question. What drives her forward? We know what holds her back. We've all experienced that reluctance to sacrifice what we do not want to sacrifice. Just because Jesus asks us to sacrifice it without seeing the immediate good or benefit that we will see from it. That's what holds her back. What drives her forward? Well, actually, it's Mordecai. Mordecai, Mordecai's in this kind of weird place right now, uh, uh, but it's Mordecai that speaks to her in such a way that persuades her to do what needs to be done. So uh, let's at least initially look at this question from Mordecai's angle. What is Mordecai up to? Well, he is doing something very traditional. He is doing something that ancient Near Easterners tend to do uh, in the Middle East is still done. You maybe have seen morning rituals on the news in Middle Eastern countries and wondered, why is it so dramatic? Why, you know, why is, what is going on here? Well, it's actually very close to what we see in biblical times with the tearing of the clothes and the sackcloth and ashes. Mourning is a ritual. Lament, we've talked about this uh, many times in the evening when we've been doing, working through the Minor Prophets, Lament is the category for bringing your struggles to God in a respectful way, of, of calling God to be accountable to His promises, but to do it, as Hebrews tells us, with respect. To do it in a way that acknowledges that God is God and you are not. So, Mordecai goes through the motions here. He does the things that you do when you hear bad news as a way of telling God how serious he is about this situation. The problem is, though he goes through the motions, we, we, have no, we still have no indication of actual faith. You, know, um, you look at this and you compare it to other examples of the tearing and of the clothes and the crying out, and, and the people that cry out, they cry out to God. God help me, God heal me, God save me. Mordecai just cries out, okay? So we're not given the kinds of signs that we want to say, you know, that Mordecai actually understands his theology. But what he does have is ritual, and ritual can be a good thing. Ritual can help you in those moments when you don't know what to do, you, you go by rote, right? It can help you in those moments where you don't really know what to do or why you're doing it, but you know what the right thing is, so you do it. That seems to be what's going on for Mordecai. He doesn't have the theology that he needs to understand what's going on, but he knows what's called for at the moment. It's lament. Uh, and he does his lament, he does his uh, mourning in a particularly public place. He is on the stoop of the king. That's why he rejects when he's offered clothes, he rejects them. He rejects them because he's making a public spectacle of himself, okay? He's doing this on purpose. This is a protest. And what he's trying to do is get Esther's attention. And it works. He's getting Esther's attention. 
He's, he's getting Esther's attention in a way that reminds Esther of her Jewish heritage, of who she is, and of what she needs to do. That she, you, are, you are us. You are, you are Jewish. You're a queen right now, but don't forget where you came from. So how does Mordecai persuade Esther? He reminds her that uh, that logic... I will not benefit. There will be no benefit from me standing up and standing firm. That, that logic is unsound. Mordecai says, someone will save the Jews. Someone will, God will send someone to deliver. We have the promises of God. It's the most theological we see, Mordecai. We have the promises of God. Someone will deliver us. And if someone else does it and you pass on this, you will be the one under judgment. Ezekiel has something similar. So if you're a watchman and you see danger coming and you fail to warn, you are culpable. You are culpable when that danger comes and is unleashed upon the kingdom. So Mordecai is reminding Esther that she actually has a responsibility here and this nothing to lose language, or everything to lose, nothing to gain. What she gains is faithfulness before God. Be faithful before your God. And your father who sees in secret will reward in secret. Right? Be faithful to God, and the God who rewards all those who are faithful will reward you in the last day. That's Mordecai's logic here. His other logic, what he also brings uh, uh, out in this uh, passage, is it's the first time in Esther where somebody starts to connect the dots. Somebody starts to see, look, all of these coincidences can't be just coincidences. It can't be a coincidence that you are in the king's palace, that you, a Jew, have, are the only one with the power to save the Jews, and you are the king's wife. And he, uh, circumspectly, right, because you can't know the mind of God, but he puts that before her. He says, and who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther is persuaded. Esther is persuaded to stand up. I think that's really helpful for us as well, for, for us to think about. A lot of times, it's our hearts that are resisting standing up. It's our hearts that resist, that hold us back. We love the things that we love, and we don't want to sacrifice them. We see the sacrifice that is coming. But what Mordecai does is he engages her will and her mind. Don't lose your life over this. You, this is a life or death moment for you before God, not before the king. You are, you are accountable to God, not the king. So if you save your life at this moment, Jesus' words, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will save it. So he appeals to her will, and he appeals to her mind. And think about this logically. It can't be a coincidence that all these things have lined up just this way. Don't you see, Esther, that providence, don't you see the blessings of ages past, the faithfulness of God in ages past, and that this is conspiring for your good and not your ill? So he appeals to her mind. Hearts hold us back. 
But as we engage our minds and our wills, and that only happens by studying Scripture, as we engage our minds and our wills within the community of faith, what happens is it prepares us to meet the coming danger. It is so important that you're here. It's so important that you're in the Scriptures, that you're learning in Sunday school and in sermons and in uh, talking together after the service and encouraging one another with the little things like tests and the big things like cancer. It's so encouraging that we're here and we're doing this and we're sharing our stories and we're studying, we're sharing them in the light of the Scripture because what God is doing is He's preparing our minds and our wills to meet the coming opposition. For Esther, that's Mordecai. For us, it's us. It's this place. God has designated it for this task. Finally then, actually, uh, notice one, uh, one more thing as an excursus. This is the turning, this is Esther's moment of truth. It is the turning point for Esther. Up to this point, Esther has been commanded. She has been talked to. She has been, uh, Mordecai and, and the king and everybody else has commanded her. At this point, she becomes the war leader, right? Um, this is the defining moment. She says, she uh, says, go, she tells Mordecai, go, gather the Jews. She gives commands, right? She's saying, okay, if I perish, I perish. Here's what we need to do. And she starts commanding the one who's always throughout her whole life commanded her. She commands Mordecai. Um, and then if you're doubting that, verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to. The tables have suddenly turned, and that's helpful because it drives us to the next point. Our next point is, why is it all worth it? What makes standing up for God at that moment worth it, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the benefits? If What gives you the confidence to say, even if I perish, it was still worth it? If I perish, I perish, and I don't regret it. Well, it's those little coincidences. Subtle in Esther, but the whole point, even though God is never mentioned in the book, the whole point is that it is God who is the hero. It is, the, it is God who has transformed Esther to be his agent of redemption for the Jews, and it is God who will act on Esther's behalf. She will go into the king, and the king will give her that scepter. Why? Because, uh, says later in verse 5, because she found favor in the sight of the king. Well, that's good language. That's biblical language. What we find throughout the Bible is that God's redeemers find favor in God's sight. That's how God works. So what he does is, uh, God, think about Noah. God plans the destruction of the whole world, but Noah was a righteous man and found favor in God's sight. Moses found favor in God's sight, so God showed mercy. Abraham found favor in God's sight. What, this is special language. It's language designed to tell us that God is at work by blessing those He's going to use as agents of redemption. And now, Esther finds favor in the king's sight. And that's not an accident. Why is it all worth it? What makes it all worth it? What makes it all worth it is the fact that we know that God uses our faithfulness, those small moments, those big moments, those times when we stand up in small ways, 
that we didn't see coming, and those times when we saw opposition coming from a mile away and still wondered what we were going to do when it came, God uses those moments for our good and His glory because He's behind it all, because this is His story, and because you are an agent in the story, because you are a part of that story, and He's using you to be a part of that story. Flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Keep going right through Hebrews and then James on to 1 Peter 10.14 for chapter 4 in the Blue Bibles. Here's how Peter puts it in verse 12 of that chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God, of glory and of God rests upon you. What is Peter telling the church here? He's telling the church a couple things. First, that opposition will come. This is a promise, okay? If you've got a promise book or like uh, Bible promises on your uh, refrigerator or on your wall or something like that, you know, you save up the promises of Scripture, the promises. This needs to be a promise. Uh, the fiery trial will come and it will test you. Uh, test means it will be hard. You will have to prepare for it. You will, not be want to, you, you will not want to be found unprepared when the test comes. That is a promise that we get from Jesus. That's a promise that's reiterated. That's what Jude means when he says uh, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ remember their predictions. What he's saying is this has been promised to you. You will, be, you will at some day be in Esther's situation. You will at some day be in a situation in which you think, wow, I am like Daniel right now. I'm like Esther right now. I'm like Christ before Pilate. And Peter wants to encourage you at that moment. He wants to say, at that moment, it will all be worth it for this reason. Because in that moment, insofar as you are suffering for your faith, you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice, he says. It's all worth it because rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. At that moment, that defining moment in your life where you name the name of Christ and it costs you something and you sacrifice something as a result or you are willing to sacrifice something as a result, if I perish, I perish. At that moment, you become an image of Jesus Christ. You are a participant in what happened to Him. Peter actually has experienced this. He experienced it in the book of Acts. We're told that he was flogged, and immediately after he was flogged by the Jews, Gamaliel speaks, they save their life. Gamaliel saves the life of the uh, apostles. But then they're flogged, and it says they rejoiced. Why? because they were counted worthy of sharing the same kinds of experiences that Jesus had. 
because they became like Jesus at that moment. And Peter has been reflecting on what that means. And what it means is this. You don't just become like Jesus in your suffering. If you become like Him in your suffering, you also become like Him when His glory is revealed. This is what Peter means. He means that you have hope that you can endure. It means that it's worth it because at that moment you share not only Christ's sufferings but His glories. Everything that was Christ's on earth would be an honor. To live is Christ, Paul says. Everything that Christ, all the suffering that He experienced on earth, it is an honor to you to experience as you walk in the Christian faith. But, the situation is also reversed. Precisely because we suffer on behalf of Christ, we receive all of His glory. Everything that He received in the resurrection becomes ours because it is His and because we share it and He shares with His brothers and sisters. He shares it all and it's infinite and it's unlimited. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And that's our life. That's what it means to stand up. That's what it means to be on fire for Christ. It means to identify both in your sufferings and your glories with Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, that all your hope is in that. What does that mean for us? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, this sounds, I didn't realize that there were promises in Scripture that I would suffer. I didn't realize that if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to make some pretty major changes in my life. I was talking to uh, a Chinese student, uh, not a Christian, this was back in college days, and he really liked the book of Genesis. He read it cover to cover, like in my house, it was really awkward. Um, he read it cover to cover at, in a sitting and really liked it and wanted to talk about it. And he, we started a kind of a six month long conversation at the end of which, and I don't know where he is now, I don't know where he's gone off to, but at the end of which he said, I really like this. I really want to own this. But I know that what it means is I have to stop praying to my ancestors. And that's going to alienate me from my family. It's going, to, it's going to offend those around me. And I have to do it. I can't do what, I, what I've always done anymore. And it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a huge problem. And I, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, here's what you need to know. You need to know that it does cost you something. You have to count the costs. Christianity, sometimes you know, Christianity is presented as this kind of better life now that you're going to become a Christian and the void is going to be full and it's going to make you happy and all of your problems will disappear. It's not like that. It's like that in the end, but it's not like that now. There will still be times of emptiness. Vanity, vanity is all is vanity. There will be still times of depression. There will still be times of sacrifice where you have to say, no, I'm going to own this even if it means losing this. Those times will come, count the costs, but realize as you count that you, have, you receive everything in return. Remember how Jesus puts it. Lose your life in order to get it. But if you hold on to your life, you will lose it. For Christians... Remember that. Remember that when the time comes, 
remember that you have received all things through Christ who strengthens you. And that doesn't mean that God is going to give you sudden bursts of speed or energy or adrenaline to solve that immediate football problem or whatever. What that means is you have all things. Everything that is Christ, that entire inheritance that is Christ's belongs to you. It is guarded by Christ in heaven, stored up for you, so you have nothing to lose. What can you lose? When you stand up for Christ, what can you lose? Temporary respect of your peers? Money? Prosperity? Influence? A beloved friend? A family member? Your life? You have all things. All things and more will be given back to you. Whatever you lose, the reward that you receive in exchange will so overwhelm what you have lost that you will say it was worth it. Let's pray.